Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out, and if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. So Major League Baseball screwed the pooch last night. I'm just putting it out there. I mean, I'm not sure what they were doing, but they screwed it up. By the way, Guy Adami here, Tuesday, October 18th. This is Market Call. Check this out, peeps. Dan Nathan is traveling. He's going to San Francisco because that's what Dan does. I mean, there's some conference he needs to be there. So Danny Moses is joining us. I mean, that is unbelievable. By the way, EY from SoFi on a Tuesday is with us. This is crazy. By the way, augurs particularly well for the Yankees this late afternoon against the Guardians of Cleveland. Today's Market Call is brought to you by our sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity, and our data partner, FactSet. And we're produced and we're powered by Open Exchange. Freaky market today, Danny Moses. I want to get into it, but how are you before we even start this thing off? Good, Guy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Listen, volatility is clearly here. You still have a VIX. We're going to look at it above 30. The intraday moves are historic in a word. But let's start off by talking about CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, who both Dan and I had the opportunity to interview a few months ago. David saying, guess what, folks? Um, A recession might be right around the corner. Time to be cautious. This is what I would say. Thank you. Better late than never. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people have been living through. But when the CEO of a major bank like Goldman Sachs makes a comment like that, he doesn't do it willy-nilly, as they say. So obviously, this was vetted. They spoke to people internally, and they came out with this. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're pulling back from their consumer-facing business markets, right? Mm-hmm. So that's obviously that um, in conjunction with Carlos Hernandez resigning from J.P. Morgan, or re- retiring, I should say, who's been at the bank for 36 years, head of their investment bank, guys that have been around that have seen a lot of things. So again, when these people speak in general, you know, whether it's market strategists that have seen a lot of cycles or CEOs that have seen a lot of cycles, pay attention. So I don't think it was a coincidence that they're reshuffling the bank and pulling out from consumer-facing credit. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Marcus was their big foray into exactly that. And I think Marcus was mentioned once in, in the entire whatever the 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 newsletter that whatever went out i think they were mentioned once or whatever his commentary was so i think that's just something to take into consideration we didn't have an opportunity to speak to you yesterday i think yesterday's rally and we're going to obviously talk about this as well was predicated on two well, maybe three things but two specifically the fact that things in england are seemingly um calming down although i would push back on that but i think the most importantly mike wilson or morgan stanley who's been right spot on in terms of this market, made a tactical call uh, and talked about the potential for a rally up to 4,000 or so in the S&P. Now, I don't want to confuse people. Mike Wilson is not bullish. He's not saying we're in the cusp of some new bull market. But when somebody like that makes a call, given his track record, Danny, the market took notice. And I think you did as well. Yeah, listen, it was on a 
Monday morning. There's not much I could have done about it to adjust my portfolio since I said I would fire. I would follow Mike into the fire, obviously. Mm. But yeah, listen, he's I think what he saw last Thursday obviously probably gave him a little bit of pause. I think the earnings that we've seen thus far aren't catastrophic, right? We kind of knew what the banks were going to kind of report and they were in line, maybe even slightly better. I think the rhetoric thus far has been okay. And to be clear, people are underinvested and I don't think they're overly short necessarily, but there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. Look, and I think he senses that. So it was kind of a cutesy call, right? Where the market could certainly trade higher, but longer term still bearish. And I see he was trying to be constructive on the market. So yeah, you know, and, yeah. and I wonder, and this I wonder out loud, and look, he's done extraordinary work. And then you have to ask yourself, is he going to try to be too nimble in a market that's very difficult to navigate? And, you know, there's obviously, look, there's a certain amount of risk in everything. Every time you open your mouth, there's there, it's riddled with risk. But when you've been so right for so long, you wonder if he's, if he's trying to get too fancy in the midst of what is still a pretty, I don't know, pretty dicey market environment. I look at today's action, and we're going to talk about a couple stocks in a second, but although the price action is good, I mean, we're significantly lower than the opens. The NASDAQ, I think, actually went negative at one point today, or at least flirted with unchanged. Tesla not tra trading particularly well into their earnings, I believe, tomorrow. So, so many cross currents here, Danny. How do you decipher, decipher all this? Because I got to tell you something. This to me is the is the part of the movie where everybody's getting chopped up in the middle of it, and nobody is seemingly doing well. Yeah, I like to call it the serpent that'll find you. Max Payne everywhere. Um, and I think that Mike was also sensing. Just back to him for a second. Other strategists kind of capitulated in the last week. They kind of threw the towel in. So I think he had a little bit of this behavioral finance mm -hmm. aspect, you know, to it coming in. So it seemed odd to me both Thursday and yesterday. And it's not just because I'm. I'm tilted bearish at all. Who are these buyers? Was it somewhere in Washington? I, again, I'm not a conspiracist, but it felt like an unnatural flow of mm -hmm. funds that came into the market. It is what it is. That's been going on, you know, you know, for years, maybe. Um, but it did feel that way to me. And so from here, again, there is the most important, the bulk of the earnings season is upon us. And I think it's really crucial that you listen, not just to what the banks say, but what an industrial company says, what an energy company says. And these CEOs of these companies have to deal with the current environment. And to me, it's a stock picker's market. So take advantage on the long end, the short side. And when I say short side, selling side, meaning if you're in a name right now that you know is kind of a little bit rich and got a bump here in the last two or three or the four last trading days, take advantage of it and sell a little bit. The flip side of that is if you've been looking at a name to own for a while, go ahead, dip your toe in here. So I think to try to predict how these ma the market indices are going to move day to day basis, to your point, is a fool's game. But at the end of the day, nothing's really changed to me in the macro environment that makes me any less bearish because the bigger picture stuff that's happening that can have an impact on some of the U.S. companies still remains. And to me, it's key to how those U.S. companies manage their way through it. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's interesting when we heard so many earnings reports last quarter, nobody, very few companies spoke of demand destruction and people pointed to that as a good thing. And listen, yes, I understand at a very uh, first level level, it is a good thing. But when you think about it, the fact that they haven't seen it yet leads me to believe it's just a matter of time before they do. So the next leg of this has always been for me, demand destruction. And I think that's where we're on the precipice of it. and we'll see if it plays itself out in terms of currency risk. I mean, that ebbs and flows. I know a lot of companies warned on that. Things have not gotten significantly better on that front either. But 
Again, the fact that these companies didn't see demand destruction, to me, is just prolonging the inevitable. So I think you make a great point. And by the way, Liz, who's going to come on in a minute, in the fall of last year into the winter, you know, she was one of the first people along with you that said this market has changed course. It's no longer a market where you're looking to buy sell-offs. It's a market where you're looking to sell rallies. And I think that's still true. So if we are on the verge, Danny, of something here, and I think we may be because we saw it in June, you know, from June 16th to the middle of August, I think the S&P rallied about 18.5%. I don't think we're going to get a move to that magnitude, but we have seen things like this before. I say all the time, the most violent rallies take place in bear markets. We're in one. But I think this is an environment where you have to say to yourself, if the market were to get to a certain level, I'm selling a portion of my stocks. Or conversely, uh, some of these stocks that I own, I'm looking to take some money off the table if the S&P gets to that level, Mike Wilson thinks. Just food for thought. Take a look at the VIX because that's something we talk about a lot. And I don't know if this really means necessarily anything to you. The math suggests, and this is sort of back of the envelope stuff, but you take the VIX, you divide it by effectively 16, and don't ask me the reasons why. That's just what people tell me. And you get the anticipated daily move. So if the VIX were 32, which is on the, basically right around, I can do that math. You're talking about a 2% daily move. And to a large extent, we're seeing exactly that. So talk to me about the VIX. How do you look at it? Am I looking at it correctly, incorrectly, or should we be looking at something differently? I mean, I think we're, listen, most times, obviously, in an uptake, you see the VIX come down. That's not happening in this case. Mm -hmm. And why is that? You know, I think because these moves, to your point, up 2%, down 2%, up 500, Dow, down 500, S&P up 100, those are not healthy moves, up or down. And I think we're going to be dealing with this for some time until there's a resolution, which unfortunately, I believe, will be to the down. And the irony is that the VIX, at, when the S&P is at 3,000, may well be back to its lows. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I can't, can't predict that. So it's hard to tell with the, the cart before the horse. I think the VIX is just a thermometer for everything that's going on in the markets. And it would not surprise me if the market ends up, you know, 100 points on S&P today or down 80, you know, and I think that's what the VIX is really telling us. And it's just telling you to have your antennas up. And that's really all it means to me. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, again, when we stay elevated for a period of time and we're, we're still a few trading sessions away from that, that's when I start to take notice. I mean, obviously, we've seen spikes in the VIX before where we get to somewhere between 35 and 40, and that typically lasts a day or two. And you literally wake up three or four days later, and it's back in the mid-20s, and it's pressing down to those levels we, we've seen historically that are still actually sort of rich. I mean, the VIX historically is probably something that should trade in the low teens, but here we are. So we bring it up, not to trade it, but it's something you should absolutely have on your radar screen a couple with some other things as well. I mean, this is an environment where people are going to get chopped up. And you know, those intraday moves, those swings that we've seen over the last four or five trading days, not suggestive of people that are doing well. To me, it suggests that people that are short volatility and are chasing on the way down as they sell more and more as the market goes lower and lower. And on the way back up as those same people have to chase vis-a-vis -vis their short volatility positions. But that's probably for a um, longer form show, Danny, that I'm sure we will do together. Well, the big Gary winner of that are the option market makers, guys. Yes. The option market makers... Win-win. They are the dealers here in the casino. So Winvix is like that. That's, so. exa that's exactly right. And again, you know, people have been rewarded for being short volatility for so long. And there's a flip side of that coin as well. And I think we're seeing that flip side. Gary Cohn in the news. And, you know, he's saying something that I think we all know, but we're going to have to see job destruction. And that's true. 
And it's somewhat counterintuitive that in order for the Fed to get their job done, they need to create destruction on the job front. By the way, we're not seeing it yet. I mean, we're seeing it around the edges, Danny, but we haven't seen it in terms of the absolute number. And I'm not certain what that means, because if they continue to sort of fight this dragon, again, I've said it for years, be careful what you wish for, they might get it. And just the same way they overshoot everything, there's a very good chance that they overshoot on the job market. And that's going to have, I don't want to use the word necessarily catastrophic, but certainly not positive results. Right. So you have wage inflation, right? Um, That's been going on. Um, Some of it's getting passed on, some of it's not. But you don't lower wages of employees, you fire them when the time comes, right? You don't say, oh, you're making less, you actually lose your job. And I think that's what he's seeing. And I think one of the unfortunate calculations that, that's been going is the unemployment rate. It's giving the Fed, you know, I think even more power and fuel now to keep raising rates when they're looking at unemployment as one of the two or three things which are really focused on, right? That dropped down to three, five, three point six percent I think that the Fed's being very conservative or aggressive, however you want to look at it, and only thinking that unemployment will make its way into the low fours over the next year. And so I think Gary knows that we're at the kind of the, the top of that. Again, a person who has seen a lot of cycles that's been out there that's just really trying to tell you how he feels. And so I mean, I think he's still on the board of IBM, right? Mm-hmm. So it's in the news and he, and he sees a lot of things. And so I, uh, I would take that again, not even with a grain of salt. I mean, take understand that. And I think he's just telling us logically what's kind of out there and what may happen. So. No, we're, anecdotally, we're getting, you know, a lot of people that I think I know you respect, I certainly do as well, that are telling you, you know, what they see on the horizon to a certain extent, what they see in the rearview mirror. And I, it, what's fascinating to me, Danny, maybe you can speak to this. When somebody says something, you know, when so, like a Warren Buffett were to say something that reinforces your dogma or belief system, Warren Buffett is a genius. But if that woman or man says something that sort of is counter to what you believe, that same person who was revered when he or she backed up your belief system says something to sort of contradict it, then all of a sudden, well, they know what they're talking about. They lost something off their fastball. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of market participants are guilty of that. They love David Tepper when he's telling you don't fight the Fed when the Fed is adding liquidity. But that same David Tepper can say don't fight the Fed by being bullish in an environment where they're taking away liquidity and they dismiss him. Just thoughts on that quickly, because I think it speaks to what you said earlier, behavioral finance. Listen, I think there needs to be logic associated with strategy, right? And so if someone has a theme or thesis on the market, if whether it's bullish or bearish, they're, they're, they're saying, if these things happen, then I have no problem with that. I can have a problem saying that those things that you think are going to happen are not going to happen or they are going to happen. But the ones that don't make sense to me are the ones that believe that we can just return, that things are going to normalize here with rates where they are, right? That we had this 13 to 15 year blissful period that somehow we're just going to readjust smoothly. That's just not going to happen. And it's evident that it's not going to happen here. And there are every year that goes by or a month or year that goes by, there's more people that never experienced you know, our age guys, some of the things that we've seen and have lived through and people don't want to believe it. And there's one way. And I think the overarching theme to me right now has been the Fed has had our back for 13 years. The unwind of this is very painful. I know we're going to talk about the gilt market and the yen market mm-hmm. and the currencies of fixed income that are happening. That's the plumbing. That's the part that has been cushioning for years, kind of what we're going to have to absorb. And there is no way out. So to me, we're going to have to get used to, and again, it's the CEO's jobs of all these public companies, and that's why I'm saying this earnings period is the most crucial we've had in in a decade, as far as I'm concerned, because you want to pay attention 
to what these companies are saying and how they're adjusting to it, because this is going to be unprecedented, not for everybody, but for a lot of market participants. So, Guy, you're right. People will hang on what the people hear, what they want to hear, disregard the rest. It's one of your all time favorite songs, I know, uh, from some of your favorite people from Queens. But that that to me is kind of where we are. And so, again, I always used to say this. If you're bearish on something, find me the bull so we can have a, you know, so we can talk it out. If I'm bullish mm -hmm. on something, find me a bear and try to work through the kind of the logic behind it. But the logic behind things right now, to me, says that the bears are going to be right. So let's take a look at the CME FedWatch tool because this is something you brought with you years ago. But by the way, you mentioned No Way Out. Great movie, Gene Hackman, Kevin Costner, and the very underrated Sean Young in her heyday, but I digress. Um, you look at this because, again, when you first brought this forth, a lot of people called you wonky. Now it seems like everybody's looking at it and, and basically calling for it and trying to interpret it. Talk to me about the CME FedWatch tool here, because it tells obviously the story that you've just spent the last 14 minutes illustrating. Yeah, but you know, to me, it's telling you what we know, but for some reason, that watch tool does not correspond with equities, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. If that watch tool is correct, and it's proven to be, and that actually gets priced into the market, which by the way, I think the FedWatch tool explains the VIX, if you want to kind of compare two, two things, because that's telling you what's going to happen in the market if the Fed does end up going. but. We're now pushing back kind of where the Fed's going to stop. Their terminal rate's going to be higher than people thought, much higher than I thought it was ever going to be. I think it'll prove to be a mistake. But I think what we've seen recently in the market rally like this only gives them more fuel to keep going. And I think that's how the market is, you know, trying to adjust to this kind of new new. And I actually believe that QT, the quantitative tightening program, will stop. Whether they're not even doing anything in the market, I don't know. I actually believe the Fed will be cutting rates sooner than that tool is telling us, mm -hmm. because I do believe we're on the precipice of something that's going to break in the system. And so that to me, the more that I see that those bar charts become steeper on one end and lower on the other, without even knowing, I couldn't even see what those numbers were, but I know that's whatever, 95% chance of 75 basis points in a couple of weeks here. You know, I, I think we'll start to see that number pull in over time. Meaning if you go back, look at March and April and May of next year, um, whenever the whenever those rate meetings or whenever those meetings are, I think we'll start to see that come in. So I think we're in the peak, if you want to look at that bar chart of all the charts that are out there that have the Fed being um, pretty aggressive here, I think they're going to moderate. So Started the show talking about the reasons why the market was rallying. I might turn Mike Wilson. The second part is what's going on in the UK, which is effectively a three-pronged stool, three-legged stool. You have obviously the government list trust, you have the pension funds, and you have the Bank of England. And seemingly the three of those groups are not on the same page. Now, they're all seeming to backtrack a little bit going into their respective corners. And I think the market's taking some relief from that. But you know what? They're far from fixed, Danny. Yeah, I mean, listen, take a step back. They have $2.4 trillion in debt. We're talking about, you know, capping energy costs at X, which is great. They're going to continue that through April. Get rid of the tax cuts that Liz brought forward, the trust brought, brought forward a couple of weeks ago. Great. Let's be fiscally disciplined here. End of the day, you're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60 billion dollars on a 2.4 trillion dollar problem. And yes, did you stop the bleeding? near term in the gilt market, right? Obviously yields uh, had gone up much to 450, 460 on 10 year. They've come in, I think, back down around to the four level. So you stop the bleeding, so to speak. Bank England came in and intervened for a period of time. And now they say that they're done. They'll be back, I think. And so I think what we've shifted now is the, the ability or the inability of central banks just to print money to fix your problems is now over because that will obviously be get more inflation. 
And I think for the first time in a long time, we've been talking about this on the tape now for weeks, if not months, people are starting to look at the banks as credits, as underwriting credits, yep. rather than just inability to print. So, so you know, to me, it's a lot of like, you know, conjecture and, and, and talking strong in order to keep these markets controlled. But the problem here, Guy, and I know we're going to look at the yen here is a second, if you look at these as kind of precursors to kind of what's going on out there, it's not pretty because we are at the tipping point. And I believe the next time they go is what bullet do they have left to fire, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, let's take a look at dollar yen because, again, I mean, we, we have a pound chart. We don't need to look at it. My point all along has been developed market currencies should not move the way they're moving. And dollar yen is just an unmitigated disaster. Bank of Japan intervened, I don't want to say four weeks or so ago. I mean, that lasted about 24 or so hours. It's almost comical, to be honest with you. But here we are. And, you know, the rise in the dollar against the yen does really show no signs of slowing down. And at a certain point, and I think we're at we're past that point, actually, the market's taking notice, Danny. It's scary because what does Japan have to do in order to defend the yen? They have to sell U.S. treasuries. Again, we're on the other side of this kind of trade here. And so I think they bought $20 billion equivalent worth of yen. They announced it in late September. They intervened. It drove the yen up or down. Everyone to look at it from 145, 146 down to the 140 level. We're certainly we're about to weaken towards the 150 level here, if not happening already. And so what's the plan here? They have to sell U.S. Treasuries. And it's not a coincidence that the day that they intervened, you watched our U.S. Treasury market, right? It went, I think, on the 10-year yields, we shot up high, and that's kind of the bulk of what they own. They're the largest holder of U.S. Treasuries outside of here. And I think they have one point, I don't know, $3 trillion worth of kind of the $23 trillion that out there floats around. It's not just them. Same thing in the U.K., right? What are you going to do to defend your currency? You may have to sell. And so, again, unwinding this 13, 15-year blissful period of time comes with pain. So pick your poison. But Japan has a problem here. They have, they have a lot of problems. The highest debt to GDP, obviously, in the world. How do they finance themselves? And if the yen keeps weakening, they import a lot of things. This isn't an economics class. I understand that. But again, people watch these things that assume, oh, the yen strengthening is back to 143. Go buy the market. But look at the math behind mm -hmm. it. So, guy, it's a temporary Band-Aid, I think, on a sinking ship. Look, I agree. This is a great time to bring in the aforementioned early on EY from SoFi, who is joining us on this Tuesday. You're going to see her in the middle of the screen in a sec. Bang. There it is. Wonderful sweater, by the way. Very autumnal. Uh, before we get into your, you're coming off a difficult two weeks. I mean, the fact that the Packers of Green Bay can lose to both New York football teams in the course of a week, I don't think that's ever happened in the history of that storied franchise. Speak to that before we get into your comments about bonds and those types of things. Yes, the mute Unmuted. button. The, I mean, the first, are really first rodeo. First rodeo there. First time on broadcast, guys. Uh, it's tough to be a Scani right now, I got to say. It's not usually tough to be a Scani, but it's tough to be one right now. The Packers usually at least show up for the season. I'm not feeling like that's happening. The Brewers didn't make the playoffs. And even in New York, I had to choose a baseball team when I got here, and I chose the Mets, and yeah. we all know how that went. So, well, you as know, they I'm said, just, I'm in, give up on sports. No, listen, what was the movie? I think it was one of the Indiana Jones. Uh, he chose poorly. And in he this case, poorly. he chose poorly. <laughs> and in terms of watch this awkward segue in terms of the bond market with your first slide, there are a lot of people that have chose extraordinarily poorly. And here we go. 
because yeah. you decided you would go on to Twitter and talk about exactly this, treasuries, investment-grade corporate bonds, and all things bond market. It ain't working out all that well, EY. It sure isn't. And anybody that was in a 60-40, not working out well for them either, which, you know what, honestly covers most of the investment universe right now. So if you're invested in bonds, if you tried to get invested in bonds, and look, I have been calling for bonds. I think that there actually were good entry points. This chart, though, makes it look so dramatic, and I yeah. don't mean to overly dramatize it, but the point here is to pull out that this has been such an offsides year. The good news, and as, as I said this in the tweet, the good news is that these years don't usually happen again. They don't happen back to back. So hopefully this is the worst one we see in a while. And I know you guys talked about the Fed expectations earlier in the show. I agree that I think we're probably at peak Fed rate hike expectations, mm -hmm. which would put this at sort of bottoming out uh, expectations on bond returns. So it might be a good entry point in bonds, but it has not been an easy year. No, Danny, you know, one of the things that I thought, one of my, I don't know, the, my ideas was the broader market was going to sell off. That proved to be correct to a certain extent. But I thought in correlation with that, you'd see a flight to quality in the form of bonds, which Listen, that's exactly the opposite of what's happened. So what are your thoughts? Because when everything goes pear-shaped, and especially the bond market, I mean, that's somewhat problematic. Well, listen, the expectations for QT is very powerful. We saw what it did to the mortgage-backed securities market in the last four to five months. People anticipated and front-ran it legally that what was going to happen. The same thing I just mentioned before. How are countries around the world going to defend their currency? They, the U.S. Treasuries are owned by everybody. So they're going to sell treasuries. Again, this is the great unwind of kind of what we're seeing. And the most important thing, and I really hope we never get there because we have bigger problems, is will people start to look at the United States on a debt to GDP basis? Will people say, you know, because let, let's keep this in mind. We're running budgets on one and a half, two percent interest for the last, you know, 10, 12 years or even zero percent what we pay on our obligations. What if that is five or six percent, seven percent in the future? You, you, you know, you talk about not being able to cut taxes here. We're raising taxes. So everything that would cause us to be more physically responsible will slow down the economy. So it, it's kind of like pick your poison as opposed to pick your adventure. It's kind of pick your poison here. And so that's kind of where we are. We're at this crossroads here. And, and listen, the market so far has been able to absorb this kind of move to the three to 4% rate treasuries, like people that need to finance themselves. A lot of companies, most of the companies will be fine, right? Yeah, they'll have a little hit to margin at the end of the day. But some won't. And the zombie companies that should have been taken out years ago are now going to get taken out. And, you know, again, Porter and Vinny mentioned it on our call we had yesterday about garbage is going to be garbage. So separation, um, you know, to the fittest here and move on. So Let's take a look at 10-year um, notes in the futures world because this is an interesting chart. I mean, this is lower left, upper right. You know, at some point, Again, I didn't anticipate this move. I anticipated part of it. I didn't think this was going to happen. To your point about debt to GDP, I mean, in the United States, Danny, you probably have the exact number. I think we're approaching 150%, which is just crazy. I don't think any developed nation's been able to basically withstand anywhere north of 115%. We're significantly higher than that. But, you know, EY, to your point, you look at this and you say, is this the overshoot? And is this... If you have, if you can have clear eyes and sort of look past some of the noise, this is something that probably is overshooting. And to your earlier point, your premise might be right. We're just probably collectively early. So maybe the bond market is going to wind up being, I hate to even say it, a bit of a safe haven here. 
Yeah, I think it is. And and let's go back to a couple of things you talked about at the top of the show. And I want everybody to think about the timing of some of this. So we've got now Goldman Sachs, we've got Solomon and Jamie Dimon saying either there's an economic hurricane coming or there's a recession coming. So far this year, stocks have drawn down peak to trough at worst 25%. That is not a recessionary drawdown. So if they are correct and there's a recession coming, and I would agree that it's probably sooner rather than later, I actually think it's sooner than what Jamie Dimon said. He projected six to nine months. I'm going to go with something like first quarter of 2023 is when it starts. If that's true, then the stock market has to correct more, which means that fear will increase, right? The VIX we usually use as a fear index. Yes, it's been above 30. It's actually been above 30 every single trading day this month, except for two. And we've had half of the trading days in October with more than 2% daily swings. That is huge. And that tells me that volatility is not going anywhere. So if they are correct, if we need to price this in, I think the dollar is the fear index, mm -hmm. not the VIX, which means that the dollar stays high because everybody gets more afraid as we get more and more certain that a recession is coming. Equities correct further and get past that 25% drawdown. And that would also probably bring the 10-year yield down because fear would continue to increase. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. That's been sort of my head as well. It obviously hasn't played out. We'll see. Now, I don't know what they call it when you go on like a tweet storm. I know Danny does something <laughs> called a tweet thread. What is it? What do they call a tweet storm, EY? I think they just call it a storm. Red. Well, you clearly went on one today because you were <laughs> opining about your love of the financials here. And obviously, we've seen a lot of them report, got some commentary. I'd say a bit of a mixed bag. Everybody loves the Bank of America quarter. You know, again, we, I'm not going to equivocate here. But what are your thoughts on financials? You had a pretty strong tweet earlier today. Yeah. So I've been pounding the table on financials for a while. And I think both of you can probably relate to this. When you pound the table on something and you feel wrong or you get criticized, when you finally feel right, you want to shout it from the rooftops. So I've been pounding the table on them for a couple of reasons. First and probably largest of which is the valuations. This is an environment, and now we've, we've lived through an environment for many years where it seemed like valuations didn't matter because we had such low rates. That's over. So now valuations really matter. Financials are the second cheapest sector in the index, and that is one of the main points I've been making. They're trading at 11.3 times forward earnings compared to an S&P at 15.8, which is right around the 15-year average. So cheap compared to the index, okay? Mm -hmm. I recognize that European financials probably in some trouble. U.S. financials are not in the same trouble. So they look good from an entry standpoint right now. Also, if you think about what might happen, if we're getting closer and closer to the end of the cycle, I also recognize that you don't want to own cyclicals into a recession, but you know when you do want to own them is when you come out. So you have to start building some of those positions yeah. and making sure that you have exposure. Also, earnings on financials, as we know, financials always go first in earnings season. They have beat at almost 7% on average. Everybody but an insurance company basically has beat on earnings so far. The season has gone really well. And if we correct more, they have less room to fall. Danny Moses might disagree with me on that, but that's my case and I'm sticking to it. The stripe in your sweater, eerily reminiscent of the trend or the, the line in that chart. Well done by you. That's called just sort of putting it all together. That's tie, tying that whole ensemble into one. Well done. Uh, we do this through the lens of futures. Well, the Russell futures through the CME, and I know... 
you've, you, you wear the crown proudly of small cap person. Let's take a look at this because, <laughs> you know, this to me, and we talked about it yesterday on Market Call. We've talked about it for a while. While the S&P made a new low, this didn't. And maybe it's going to lead us back to the upside. We're flirting with the 50-day. Do we get back to, I think that's the 150-day. What are your thoughts here, EY? So people are going to tell me I'm early on small caps. Look, I was I was wrong about them earlier in the year, and I had to change my position because it just got too risk-off. It didn't make sense anymore, and, and the risk-reward didn't make sense. It is probably a little early to go all in on small caps, but always remember, again, if we're getting closer to the end of the cycle, small caps almost every single time lead out of a recession. And looking at the valuations, this is a lot of the same points that I made about financials, looking at the valuations versus large caps, way more attractive. Now they have been more attractive for a reason because they obviously got hit harder by the pandemic and we can go down a whole laundry list of other reasons. But if you're looking to enter, this is an attractive entry point. And if our thesis on the dollar plays out, meaning that dollar is the fear index stays stronger, that's a tailwind for small caps too. So, and you know what? The day that small caps outperform large caps or outperform every other asset class for an extended period of time, I might have to retire. I'm just, I'll have to be done after that. No, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're too valuable to us here. Let me just say this. You know, you mentioned laundry list. I never really understood that. I mean, you have a pile of dirty clothes and you bring them to the washing machine and you throw them in. You separate colors and whites. and off. So it really doesn't require a list. Groceries, on the other hand, so grocery list makes sense. So I don't know where that term came from, but again, you don't have that on your bingo card, so tough toenails. This is the part wow. of the show where I tee up uh, Danny Moses. And you're going to love this, Demo. And it's not trading particularly well. I alluded to it earlier. But oh, City making comments about Tesla. So this is where I just sort of hand it over to you, Danny, and you can opine, wax, do whatever you want to do. Let me just say on Liz's comments on the banks, I agree, but I will say in the words of Dennis Green, we are who they thought they were. Mm. They are who we, we, we thought they were. The banks were going to do. They were pretty predictable. And yes, I think it's a safe place to hide. Um, as it relates to Tesla, I mean, I think people just trying to hedge themselves going into the quarter. Again, it's not a stock that trades on fundamentals. It's a stock that trades on Musk and his personality, which I think the, which he is and he's the brand. And I think the fear is that that brand is coming in and degrading, you know, you know, a bit here. And so, again, I'm not going to try to predict what the quarter is going to be. They can play a lot with the adjustments. They may indeed beat by a few pennies if they miss. To me, it doesn't trade on fundamentals. But to me, I'll say it again, people are probably sick of hearing it. I think Tesla is the name that represents everything about this market. It's been going on for the last several years. Um, bad corporate governance, um, difficult counting to, to pierce through, not trading on valuation, um, things like that. And I, and I think that's all coming to a head here. And that May, what's really interesting, Guy, you know what tomorrow is? The date tomorrow is October 19th. Mm -hmm. I remember where I was on October 19th, 1987. I was in my dorm room and my father called me to tell me, get a job. And I became an intramural softball umpire. Um, and Ooh. so I'm not saying that tomorrow happens, but it's just interesting to me. They happen to be reporting on at the end of the day on October 19th, uh, 2022. Let's just leave it at that guy. So, Danny, before we end, first of all, thank you, obviously. Do not blurt out the answer to this. Uh, uh, EY, for extra credit, what gives a muskrat his musk? 
Oh, I have no idea. Of course you don't, which is very unfortunate uh, f- for me. Actually, it was a movie that I saw when it was released in 1939. I saw it with my grandmother at the time, obviously the great Wizard of Oz. That's the Cowardly Lion. <laughs> what gives a muskrat is musk. That's courage. You lose, but thank you for playing our home game. EY is having dinner with Dan and Jim Chanos on Thursday. I didn't get that invite. <laughs> Danny Moses, thanks for joining us and filling in for the aforementioned. That's it. I want to thank CME Group, Obvi. I want to thank FactSet, Obvi. And I want to thank Open Exchange for powering us. By the way, all the charts you saw were from the aforementioned FactSet. Programming note. I've always wanted to say this, and I'm going to read it so I don't screw it up. Next Monday, the 24th of October, we will do a market call live on Sirius XM at 12 p.m. Eastern for one hour. No video. But if you want to be part of the show, which I know you all do, and ask any freaking questions you want to ask of me or Dan Nathan, dial in. Write this down. 844-942-7866. That's next Monday. We're taking over Sirius for an hour. I don't know what they were thinking, but it's going to be freaking epic. See you tomorrow, folks.